Good morning, everyone. I want to take a moment to pray about a couple things. First of all, as you know, Austin uh, and a group of folks from the area are trying to minister and see what God's doing over in Trenton. And so tomorrow, Austin and some of the other believers from our church are going to be participating in a unique outreach picnic. And so they've asked for us to pray. God's working. It's amazing. He's working in Syria. He's working in Trenton. And he's working here. But be praying that they'll... You can't just go in there and pass out tracts. Much of it is prayer and relationships and asking God to open up doors. It's cross-cultural setting. And so... Be in prayer tomorrow as you're celebrating, asking God to open up powerful doors for Austin. Secondly, we want to remember it's Memorial Day weekend, and we're blessed. Isn't it a privilege for us to sit here in safety and not to be worried about bombs bursting in air over our head? So let's take a moment just to praise God for all of our veterans who've given their lives so that we could have the safety and freedom that we have. And don't give up praying for that. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2, pray for your kings and authorities that we might lead quiet lives in godliness. So pray that we're free from the wrath of God, the wrath of the government, but also pray that as a church, there will be revival in America. The reason there aren't more Christians in America, hands down, is because of Christians in America. So let's be in prayer for that. And then a couple other things. We have a crosstalk coming up on marriage and strengthening marriages on the 23rd. So be praying about that. And then... We've got Vacation Bible School we want you to pray for, but particularly, um, we've got a few people that are very sick. Um, a number of you know that Ida has, um, her cancer is severe, Dean Petricelli, and now uh, our own dear brother Roger Adams has given me permission to ask prayer as they have discovered um, some sort of lesions on his back and he's going for a biopsy, but Roger's in a great deal of pain, but he's here today and we praise God for that. He also is here... Yeah, let's, let's praise God. He's been a great fellow soldier, and we plan to keep him around for a long time. And he also has with him a dear friend of his and mine, a fellow soldier in the Lord, a gospel pastor for many, many years, Brother D Jamie Mitchell. So let's welcome him as well. And then finally, I want to introduce real quick some dear friends of ours some 35 years ago, we used to minister together in a Christian school in South Jersey, and Holly and Sharon Ham became dear friends of ours. They're faithful workers of the gospel, and they are now moving to South Carolina. So be in prayer for them, but let's welcome them to our fellowship today. All right, let's pray together. Father, we praise God. We praise you so much for the gospel. We're here because your gospel has reached us. And Father, there's a whole world out there that lies in the power of Satan, but the gates of hell are not prevailing. Jesus is Lord, and he's reigning, and his gospel is changing lives. So we pray and thank you, Lord, that you are working. Use Austin and the team in Trenton, Lord, to have open doors to bring the gospel to the people who sit in darkness. May they see a great light, protect them from the evil one, and give open great conversations. Give them boldness and wide open ministry. Father, we pray for the saints in Syria and Lebanon, so many of them giving their lives and threatened with their lives, but so full of joy. Thank you for these extraordinary miracles of how you're calling Muslims to yourself. As many as the Lord God appointed to eternal life, Father, you're calling to yourself, and we rejoice in this. We pray for VBS, 
that we will reach hundreds of children and that you'll raise up many, many workers, Father, and that we will uh, buoy that in prayer so we can see God's power at work. We pray also, Father, for those who are suffering. We pray for Dean and his family, for Ida and her family. I'm sure there are others who are suffering severely. We think of Mary and Chuck Sutton, Lord, with her broken hip. And we just pray, Father, especially for Roger today. We gather around this spirit-filled, joyful brother who has blessed so many of us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. We pray together in faith, and we ask that you'll speak a miracle, Lord, and that you will touch this cancer and that you will bring it into remission, that you will strengthen him and calm the pain. And Lord, we pray that you would mercifully allow Roger many more years. Father, as the psalmist said, the dead don't praise you, Lord. Keep him here on this side of glory that he might tell what the Lord has done for him. And we pray all these things for Jesus' sake in his name. Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. So I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, we always love to give out Bibles. We're, we're happy to share a Bible with you. You can keep this Bible, and we want you to read along with us. We're reading the Gospel of Mark, and I want to remind you that each of the Gospel authors, they all had the same material for the most part. It wasn't like they only had a little bit from different things. They had the same material, but the Spirit of God led them to write with their historical material, but theological concerns. And so Mark's theme is he's writing to suffering Romans, and he's trying to help them to understand that you have to clarify who Jesus is before you commit to the journey. So in Mark, in the first eight chapters, the disciples look like morons. They can't seem to grasp who Jesus is. The first verse says, Jesus is the Son of God. In chapter one, the Father says, this is my Son. The demons say, we know who you are, you're the Son of God. But the disciples say, when Jesus does miracles, who is this guy? And so as we come to chapter 8, they finally get it. And Peter goes, you are the Messiah. And Jesus goes, yes. However, now we need to go to school over again because what you think the Messiah is going to do and what I'm telling you the Messiah is going to do are so different that we're going to talk about committing to the journey because before he's a reigning Messiah, he's a suffering Messiah. And so they couldn't grasp that. And so we're in the midst of Jesus trying to help them to understand who he is. Now, here's an interesting scenario. Picture this as a map of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus did a lot of his ministry on the western shore of Capernaum. Across the Sea of Galilee, about eight miles across, was a primarily Gentile region occupied by Roman soldiers and lots of godless Gentiles. Jesus intentionally says to the disciples, let's take a boat ride over to the other side. Now, think about that. When he first came, he said, I am coming only to the Jews, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But he's beginning to introduce to us that his ministry was going to go to Gentiles. Now, there are certain people groups that Satan has a stronghold on. The Bible actually talks about an area where Satan's throne is. And so these darker regions of Galilee, the Bible says the people who sat in darkness saw a great light. Now, what I want you to note here is that when Jesus says, we're going over there, Satan knows that. And Satan does not want Jesus to go over there and start penetrating those people with the gospel. So he's going to try to stop him on two fronts. First, he's going to stop him with a storm, 
and then he's going to stop him with a maniac. And so don't miss back in chapter 4, we saw that halfway across this violent storm comes up. We know from the book of Job that Satan has the ability to intervene powerfully in nature. But Jesus sets the storm at peace. They just keep right on going because Jesus is going to reach these people. But when he gets there, now he's confronted by a violent, evil, twisted, demon-possessed maniac running at him. So let's take a look. As we walk through this, then I want to loop around and talk about four things. We want to talk about Satan's ministry. What's Satan doing? But as you're reading about this guy, I want you to think about sinner's misery. You see, this guy becomes a picture of the misery that sinners experience with a life apart from God. But third, what we'll find, though, is the Savior's might and his mercy. So when Jesus meets Satan's ministry and sinner's misery, he unleashes his might and mercy. And so at the end, we're going to find that Jesus is going to take sinners and make them become missionaries. So let's start working through the passage and then we'll come back around and look at those things. Beginning in verse 1, and again, this is why we encourage you to have a Bible and learn how to read verse by verse. Don't use a Bible like a Ouija board jumping around, but, but learn, hey, I can read through the Bible and God can speak to me and I can make connections here. And the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. So look at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Now, there's a lot of discussion among archaeologists where this is. There's a number of cities like this, but it appears that there's a place over there where there's a steep cliff that comes right down to the, to the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Much like you've seen in California, you've seen areas where the beach isn't just like a sandy thing, but there's, there's a steep ravine or cliff. So as they approach, it says in verse 2, when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit. Now that's a term for demons. So a demon-possessed man met him. Now Mark's going to stop there and he's going to loop around and say, I'll tell you about that later. But I want to tell you a little bit about this guy. And as we're reading, think about Satan's ministry and this man's misery. It said he had his dwelling among the tombs. Now who lives in a graveyard? And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him, the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. So obviously this guy was a nuisance at, at best, right? We'll start with that. He was a tremendous nuisance. And maybe for his own sake and for the safety of others, they're like, we got to 302 this guy. We got to tase him. We got to strap him down. We got to get him into some confinement so that he doesn't destroy himself and others but they were absolutely unable to do that many times. I mean, have you ever watched cops? You ever see some of these crazy people when they're coked up on different drugs? And sometimes I think demon-possessed, they're throwing 10 guys around like ragdolls. So this guy had become so under the control and authority of Satan that he had this supernatural power. But I want you to think of his own personal misery. Look how Jesus described him. He said in verse 5, constantly, day and night, 
among the tombs and in the mountains. He was crying out and gashing himself with stones. The word crying out here can be translated screaming, right? Somehow crying out seems to kind of like subdue a little bit. He would scream, right? And the word cutting yourself can also be translated in the Old Testament, it was hitting himself with stones. So this maniac, demon-possessed lunatic, what a miserable, lonely, painful, twisted life. You know, woken up by demons in the middle of the night, just raging and raving and screaming and injuring himself and lonely and terrified and terrifying. Shows us how hideous and horrible. Who would do this to someone? Well, Satan and demons, and they probably took great delight in it. Now, don't miss that. Satan is tormenting this guy. But then verse 6 says, now let me tell you how they met up. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Now, now note that. Seeing Jesus from a distance. He's never seen Jesus. What do you mean seeing? from? Hey, there's my pal Jesus. He doesn't even know what Jesus looks like. And it wasn't like Jesus was two rows back. Jesus might have been still 100 yards out in the boat. And this demon-possessed guy is, ah! And he sees Jesus from a distance. And so the demons are the ones who see Jesus. But they have authority over this guy. So immediately when he saw Jesus, he ran up. Now just start with that. If you saw a screaming, bloody, crazy maniac running at you, what would you do? My initial response would be, I'm running first, right? Jesus calmly stands there. I once had a guy, I was literally sharing my faith with a guy in a parking lot, and a car comes screeching up, and the guy I'm talking to runs like a scared rabbit, and the guy in the car goes, where'd he go? I go, I don't know. He says, where is he? I said, I don't even know him. I was just telling him about Jesus, and the guy goes, come here. And I'm only like here to the car. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm thinking to myself, I'm like a little puppy. I'm going like this. <laughs> I'm picturing the door flying open and shooting. He goes, come here. And I said, I'll pray for you, man. He goes, I'll pray for myself. And sometimes we see that just the, the, but that's nothing compared to this guy running at Jesus. But unlike the other people who he just slams to the ground, he runs to Jesus and look what it says. It says, he runs to Jesus and bows down before him. Now, the word bow down is, is the typical word in the New Testament for worship. Now, I'm not going to suggest that he was worshiping, but, but that's the same word. So Jesus has such authority in his very person that demons bow in his presence. Now, why? Why does this demon-possessed man who usually fights people bow down before Jesus? Well, look at verse 7. He cries out with a loud voice. Okay, so he doesn't come up and say, hey, Jesus, can we talk? He's screaming at the top of his lungs. What do I have to do with you, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. In fact, in Greek, it's literally, please swear by God that you won't torment me. Now, that gives us a window. Have you ever, like, we all have this with teenagers. They do something crazy and we say to them, why'd you do that, right? That's a waste of oxygen because they go, I don't know. So if, if, if we just said to this demon, why'd you do that? We wouldn't know. 
But based on what he said, the Holy Spirit gives us some insight. He says, do not torment me. Well, who said anything about tormenting you? When we parallel passage this passage with the book of Luke, they, he said, have you come to torment us before our time? Okay? So, I don't need the Scrutep letters to get a sense of what the demons are thinking. Note to self, demons know they're doomed to destruction, right? They know they're going to hell. They know that there will come a day when Jesus will cast them day and night to be tormented forever. So they're not looking for an escape. They're not looking to repent. They're only looking for a stay of execution. They said to him in the Gospel of Luke, are you going to cast us into the abyss now? Right? Isn't it ironic that you'll never read of one single demon? Wouldn't one of them have enough common sense to say, I screwed up. Jesus, I'm sorry, have mercy on me. Sin hardens the will in such a way that left to ourselves, no one will ever have the sense of turning from sin to God. Book of Revelation says when God is raining hailstones on men and they know it, they'll blaspheme God and curse him to his face. And so these demons, what we learn here is that Satan knows he's doomed. Book of Revelation says he knows his time is short. So he's not looking to get mercy. He's just looking for an extended stay. And so notice how he tries to bargain with Jesus. Jesus said, come out of him, you unclean spirit, verse 9. And he was asking him, what's your name? And he, now notice singular, he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now the word Legion was used of the Roman armies. It actually was between 5,500 and 6,000 soldiers. It was the largest unit, right? That was the biggest force. You could have more than one legion, but a legion. So, so we go, wait. So this guy has between five and 6,000 demons inside of him? How did they get there? I mean, that to me is one of the biggest questions, and there's a mystery to demon possession in the Bible. It's not as simple as, well, he must have been playing Dungeons and Dragons or his granddad had tarot cards because there are times in the Bible we read of children possessed by demons. So it is possible that this man's behavior opened himself up to these demonic indwellings, but we don't know that for sure. But this was an extreme case of absolute demonic control from demons on the inside. Now, we can get some sense as to what demons do and what they're thinking. They said, do not torment me. If I was there, I would have said, you know what strikes me, demons? You didn't seem to have any problem tormenting that guy. You torment him day and night, but suddenly when it's your turn, now you're looking for a stay of execution. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, what does that mean? Don't send me, the Greek word country is region. Please, please, don't send us out of the region. There's a couple possibilities. One is because this was a satanic stronghold, right? Don't make us leave here. 
Another possibility is the only option is if Jesus makes them leave because in Luke they said, don't send us to the abyss. So there's an important backdrop I want you to note about demons. When Satan first left heaven, the Bible says he left with Satan and his angels. But the scriptures tell us that some of those demons are already confined in hell. Not all of them. Second Peter chapter 2 talks about demons who are already confined in chains. The book of Jude talks about some demons who are already confined. So I suspect that what their fear is that they're going to have an early exit into the abyss and into hell, right? And so they come up with a plan. Jesus, I've got an idea. Please don't send us out. But there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountainside. And they entreated him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Now, we can stop and go, swine, wait. Swine were unclean. They shouldn't have had swine there. But I'm going, well, time out. These are Gentiles, okay? And the Roman army had a huge citadel there and meat was a commodity. They didn't eat meat often. Even the soldiers, we know, they didn't eat a lot of meat. So 2,000 swine was a lot of meat probably to be used for the feeding of these Roman soldiers. But there's a real economic issue going on here as well as an animal rights issue. Like, wait a minute, that's a lot of money and these are pigs, you know. They're equal to people, aren't they? So they asked to go into the swine and now notice here, Jesus gave them permission. So coming out of the man, verse 13 says, the unclean spirits entered the swine. Now, again, people who are looking for a way to contradict the Bible. See, there was a legion of angels, but we're going to read there's only 2,000 swines. So that's a contradiction. How can 6,000 demons go into 2,000 swine? And I go, I got a better one. How can 6,000 demons go into one person? So don't get bogged down on how many, was it one-to-one with... But think about this. Suddenly, these demons enter the swine. Now, here's where it becomes mysterious. It says, the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, at first you might say, yeah, see, those demons love to kill. And I'm going, I don't think this was the demon's desire. I don't think for a moment they go, Please send us into the pigs so we can drown them, right? I think this was the sovereignty of God. You want to go into the pigs? Go ahead. But you're going to the abyss. Because as you, this room will hold about 500 people. Multiply that by four and put a a pig in every seat. Don't take it personal. (laughs) Think of all these floating, dead, bloated pigs in the water there, right? all of that destruction where are the demons are they all standing on the pigs going sully help get me out of here no i think the demons at that point were sent to the abyss meanwhile there's a lot of people who saw this if you're herding two thousand pigs you don't have two shepherds there may have been 50 100 150 workers right? And they all saw this. 
And it says, those who tended them, verse 14, ran away and they reported it in the city and out in the country. I mean, they went back to the villages screaming, guys, the, the pigs, the pigs, it's our entire life, they're drowned. And everybody's like, what? I, I, I own 20 of those pigs. What are you talking about? And so people in mass just become enraged and crazy and scared and confused and they go running to the lakeside. I got to see this. And so they get there. It says the people came to see what happened and they came to Jesus. And it says they observed the man who had been demon-possessed. Now, I can suggest that this guy's picture was in every post office. I doubt that it would be fair to say no one ever heard of this guy. I think everybody knew about this guy. In fact, I think anybody who knew about this guy, even their wave app said, avoid this graveyard. Don't go through here. So everyone knew this guy. Maybe his parents, because Jesus is later going to talk about his own family, his, his kinfolk. He had a name. He had a town. And people knew about crazy Jerry who lives down there. That guy's a nut, and he's scary. And suddenly, there he is. And notice how the Bible describes him because I think Jesus is clearly saying, hey, don't miss the imagery here of a sinner before Christ and what the Lord can do for someone. Because notice the description. Several observations. They said, number one, he was sitting down. This crazy, mad lunatic who's all over the place, right, is sitting down. Secondly, he's clothed. Right? Instead of naked and crazy and cutting himself, he's calmly there, clothed. And third, and maybe this is the most important, he's in his right mind. No longer out of his mind, he's calm, he's cogent, he's clear, his eyes are bright. He looks like he's doing real well, right? And what's their reaction? It says, they saw that man who had the legion and they became frightened. Why? Why would you be frightened? I would be, that's cool, look at this guy. But it's ironic because the same thing happened when Jesus calmed the storm. The storm frightened them, but when Jesus calmed the storm, it says, then they became extremely frightened. You're like, why would you be extremely frightened? He just calmed the storm. And what I want you to think about is, it's all about Jesus. You see, if you don't understand who Jesus is and you have no sense of an affection or desire to know him, you'll have an aversion to him. There's a reason why people push Jesus away. It's not because they don't know John 3.16. It's because John 3.20 says men love darkness rather than light. And so what strikes me here is that as this man experiences mercy, these people dry, get away. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. It says, those who had seen it described to him how it happened in the demons of this man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to depart from their region. Can you imagine that conversation? Yes, sir. Could, could, could you please leave? We're not saying you have to, but... We, we, please, we beg you, we're just peaceful people trying to make a living, and now we've, would you just please leave? And Jesus, in his 
gentle way instead of going, you talking to me, I own this place. He just gets in the boat and he leaves. And as he was getting into the boat, now again, don't miss this because there's a message for you and me. The man who had been demon-possessed, who had experienced this great mercy from Christ, was begging him that he might accompany with him. Now, literally, it says he was begging him to be with him. That's cool. Hey, man, I just want to be with you. Why? Because he had experienced mercy. Don't miss that this is the same phrase that's used in Mark 3 when it says Jesus picked 12 guys to be with him, right? The essence of Christian discipleship is once you get an understanding of who Jesus is, you're going to want to be with him. You're going to be on your knees with him. You're going to be in his word. And those who want to be with him like to be with others who like to be with him, right? There's a reason why the churches aren't bursting the walls because some people want to be with Jesus and be with Jesus' people, and some don't. But in his desire just to to love and be with Jesus, Jesus pulls a curveball. By now, we could have answered for him. We could have said, don't tell anybody. Whatever you do, pal, don't tell anybody, because that's what's been happening in Mark, right? Every time Jesus heals somebody, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. But just when you think you got Jesus figured out, he says to this guy, go tell everyone. You're like, wait, what? He says, go home to your people and report to them two things. What great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went off. He took his little notebook. He said, can you just repeat that? What's my job? Go home to your, to your own family and your own friends, your own villages, and tell them two things. What great things the Lord's done for you. Okay, great things the Lord's done for me. And how he had mercy on you. How he had mercy on you. You got it. Next verse. He went off and he began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus said. Now, now let your imagination go. How did he do this? Did he stand at the city gate? It's me. It's, you guys remember me. See these scars? I was that demon-possessed guy, but Jesus healed me. Now, how do you think that went? Do you think everybody was like, fascinating. Tell us more. Would you lead us in a Bible study? In fact, we're going to close the town down because this is so exciting. Tell us again. I imagine there were all kinds of reactions. I've had people say to me, Tom, I thought you were crazy and I would stay away from you. This was like yesterday. No, I'm like kidding. <laughs> this is when I first got saved. But come back six months later and say, hey, I was thinking about it and someone else talked to me and I got saved. I visited an old man one time who was a neighbor of mine and I told him about Christ as he was dying in the hospital. He said, Tom, I'm an old man and I'm a Presbyterian deacon and I'm too old to change. But I went back to see him in a nursing home and it was like a different person. I'll never forget his prayer. Dear Lord, if you can change an old man like me. The last time he saw him, Jackie McDonald saw him reading his Gospel of John in the nursing home before he died. So here's here's something I want you to think about. The reason why Jesus sent him home and the people on the other side, he's going to be quiet, is because among the Jews, they couldn't handle yet what the Messiah's role was. So he had to keep that on the lowdown. 
because when they began to think he was the Messiah, the Bible says they tried to make him a king by force. And Jesus slips away because if they said, King Jesus, King Jesus, all the zealots would have come out. They would have said, let's have a guerrilla warfare. We're going to have a coup. Jesus is going to beat down Caesar. And the whole thing would have folded right then. But among the Gentiles, these people aren't going to go, oh, let's make Jesus king. This guy was the John the Baptist to the Gentiles because we're going to learn later in the gospel of Mark, Jesus returns to this place. And this time he gets a warm reception. How come? Because somebody got past what people think about them and they wanted to tell people what the Lord had done for them. And so as, as we kind of wind it down this morning, we say to ourselves, okay, I'm probably not going to encounter quite the same thing, but it's important as the, as the people of God, number one, to be reminded of Satan's ministry. Don't forget the big picture. Life is not just fun and praise. It's a war. We live in a world that is controlled by Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this world. The very name Satan means adversary. He hates God. He opposes God, and he hates people. And he's got two ways that he attacks them. If they're unbelievers, misery loves company. He wants to drag you to hell with him. He's not the landlord of hell. He's going to burn brightly in hell, but he wants to take as many people with him as he can. So we're told in the Bible that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. And one of the ways he does that is he doesn't care if you're religious. He doesn't want everybody to be an atheist. You can be as religious as you want as long as it's not the truth of the gospel. So 1 Timothy 4 says, In the last days, many will fall away from the faith. There's 40,000 people going to hear some preachers but they're not telling them the truth of the gospel. They're getting their ears tickled. And this is why they'll fall away, it says, because they'll pay attention to the doctrines of demons. So remember that, that the, the people around us are lost. They're held captive by Satan. They're blinded. And we need to talk to God and men about Christ. But that's not his only goal, because while he wants to make unbelievers blind, he wants to make Christians miserable. The Bible says he prowls about like a roaring lion for Christians seeking someone to devour. He's an accuser. He's an attempter. And if you and I aren't watching and praying, he'll bring you down. He'll bring me down. None of us are exempt from this. In fact, one of his primary ways we learn from Ephesians is to have a Christian just start getting mad. Just kind of let that anger simmer. Let it grow inside of you. Refuse to forgive. Ephesians 4 says this. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give Satan a place. And so while Satan, I don't think, can possess Christians, he certainly can oppress them. And sometimes his oppression is because Christians are careless about their souls or willfully living in sin and not repenting, and not staying close to Christ, and not submitting to God so that we can resist the devil. So perhaps some of you are experiencing some level of satanic attack, and Satan has an advantage over you. The Bible says don't be ignorant of his schemes. And the solution to that is to give your life back to Christ and surrender. And if you know you have sin in your life, to repent, 
to ask prayer from others, to be vulnerable. We're all in this same thing. And let's not go to two extremes. If we meet someone with mental illness, we don't go, oh, you're demon-possessed. But nor do we go, oh, no, just take a pill. Sometimes there's a, there's a complexity. There is physical reasons why people have mental torment. But there's also spiritual reasons. And we need to think holistically and recognize that Satan is trying to keep you from being effective. He can't take your soul, but every one of you has the opportunity to be an influence. He loves nothing more than to bind you up with shame, fear, guilt, confusion, believing his lies. The same devil who tempts you to sin is the devil who will accuse you that you're not a Christian. Christians can't do that. And he's very clever. But it's worthwhile to remember also the sinner's misery. Because I can look back on my life and, and, and I, can, I can connect with this guy. No, I didn't run around dashing myself, but I know what it's like to be a fearful, shame-filled person. Nobody else knew that. Ah, oh, look at Tom, man, he's cool, he's selling weed, he's the man. But I was, I was so miserable. I was so fearful of dying. I was so insecure and oppressed by what people thought of me. I was a slave to my own lusts and my own shame. And isn't that really the nature of what sin is? I mean, sin shows up in many flavors, but think about the people around us. Yeah, they might have big homes. They might have some level of happiness and luxury, but on the inside, they're dead. They're barren. They're empty. The Bible says they're without God, without hope. And it usually doesn't just end there. It shows up in their relationships. How many people are in broken horizontal relationships? It's not because it starts here. It's because it starts here. Until your heart gets right with God, how can you possibly learn how to love someone else? And so many of us have baggage from our past and all kinds of things. But remember this as a Christian. You and I were dead in our sins. We were deserving God's wrath. We were held captive by Satan. This is Ephesians 2. Energized by the prince of the power of the air. But, Ephesians 2, 4 says this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive. And so whatever Satan's beating you down to make you feel like a miserable piece of trash, that is not the truth. If you're a Christian, you have been touched by the Lord, and you need to remember that. You might not have two nickels to rub together. Your wife might have left you. You lost your job, and you're depressed. But I can tell you this. If you're a believer, you are rich. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You might say, I find myself feeling lonely, but there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. And so as Christians, we need to stop and go, Lord, Help me to remember the sinner's misery. Help me to remember that now that I have Christ, the Lord has done great things for me. And I've experienced his mercy because fear of God never motivates a person to live for him, but mercy moves us. And so as we think about the sinner's misery, remember the Savior's might and power, the same Jesus who mightily set this guy free. He's still doing that. I'm one of them. Is there anybody else here Jesus set you free? 
If I asked you to stand up, I'll bet you 100 people could stand up right now and say, let me tell you what the Lord has done for me and how he had mercy on me and how I should be dead in hell. And so praise God for the Savior's might. Jesus can reach you to the, to the guttermost. And, and Hebrews says he'll save you to the uttermost. And so remember that. No matter how messed up you are, don't forget the Savior's might, but also don't forget his mercy, right? He's not going to kick you to the curb. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I won't cast him out. He won't say, you're too far gone, you, you dirty animal. This guy wasn't much more than an animal. The Greek word for they couldn't subdue him is the word that's used of taming an animal. But Jesus, now listen, here's the kicker. Jesus can take miserable maniacs and make them missionaries of God's mercy. That's it? Two amens? Let me try that again. Jesus can take miserable maniacs and make them missionaries of God's mercy. Amen. Amen. And some of you are going, yes, these miserable maniacs around here, right? Well, we got another passage for you. But just ask yourself something as simple as this. Go tell people what the Lord's done for you. Something good about reviewing that. Something good about that. Dust off your old memory and think about what has the Lord done for you? Tell it again to your children. It's what I said. I said, go home and, and say to your spouse, tell me again, what's the Lord done for you? I'm going to do that, Tammy. I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to ask, tell me how the Lord had mercy on you. And then I'm going to tell you how he did it for me. But then you say, well, who else should I tell? Go and tell your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. You say, well, they, don't, they might not like it. Did he say that? Did he say, no, only if they like it and go, tell me more. Just tell them what the Lord has done. We're building a community of gospel-transformed people. And isn't it wonderful to be part of a community of disciples who go, man, I am so thankful. I can relate to this guy. When Charles Wesley said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, your eye brought forth a quickening ray, and I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, and I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Do you feel the, the energy there? Can you picture the songwriter saying, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold? Oh, maybe he wasn't cutting himself. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than wealth and land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. Oh, Lord, take me with you. Than to be the king of a vast domain. But here it is. And be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Amen? So let's get busy, miserable maniacs, and let's become missionaries of God's mercy until we have to blow these walls out and welcome sinners far and wide. And meanwhile, over in Syria, we say, Lord, do it tenfold. Amen? Father, thank you. You are at work. Jesus lives. I'm excited. I've already heard from four or five adults that want to get baptized. Praise God. Praise God that you, you take sinners and bring us to a place of brokenness and then a place of healing. Right now, I ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would set 
someone free. I sense through the Holy Spirit that there are some here who are in misery. And if that's you, if you know you're in misery right now, you know why you're in misery, because you've been rebelling. You know that Satan has a stronghold in your life. Your only hope is to come to Jesus right now and in your will, fall down and surrender to him. Don't leave. Don't run from him. Don't drive him away. Right now, tell him, Lord Jesus, come and heal my heart. Heal my mind. Set me free. And I'll join the throng of people who will tell others how the Lord had mercy on him. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Go and tell what the Lord's done for you.